Welcome to the Fueling the Future podcast, where we get to the bottom of global trends, issues, and and developments in low-carbon fuels and vehicles. Are you looking for real insight and analysis from the industry's top experts? Are you trying to stay ahead of the curve and read the tea leaves on the issues? Then you're in the right place. My name is Tammy Klein, and with me today is John Basel of CalStart. John is the president and CEO of CalStart. Upon graduating from the University of California, Davis, in 1982, John worked in the California legislature as a legislative aide to then-Assemblyman, now-Congressman Sam Farr. In that position, he managed energy and environmental legislation for nearly four years. He received his MBA from the Haas School at UC Berkeley in 1989. After graduating from business school, he worked as a commercial banker in Wells Fargo's corporate headquarters building in San Francisco. In 1993, John joined CalStart as the Vice President of Technology Programs, and in 2001, the Board of Directors promoted him to the position of President and CEO. John serves on the Advisory Board for the Precourt Energy Efficiency Center at Stanford University and is also a board member of the Clean Vehicle Foundation. John, welcome to the show today. It's great to have you. Tammy, very nice uh, to be with you and uh, look forward to our conversation. Me too. So um, to get us started, could you, for anyone who may not be familiar with CalStart, especially those listeners outside the country, can you give some background about CalStart, its members, and its mission? We are a nonprofit organization, and our mission in life is to address the environmental and public health challenges created by the transportation sector by working with industry to develop clean, reliable, and affordable transportation solutions. So what that means is uh, we've got 160 member companies that we work with on on a daily basis, and that includes companies that are working in the automotive sector like Tesla, General Motors, Volvo. We work with almost all the major truck and bus manufacturers. We've got a great group of fleet members, including FedEx, UPS, Waste Management. And uh, then we work with a number of technology innovators and suppliers. We are supporting all the different approaches that can help us reduce both criteria and greenhouse gas emissions. And we think that all of these approaches are needed uh, as we move forward to address our challenges. So there's a there's a need for lighter weight materials. There's a need for cleaner, lower carbon fuels, advanced drivetrains, better energy storage, et cetera. And those are the kind of companies that we get to work with on a daily basis, and it's, it's a real honor and a pleasure. So I want to ask you about, there's so much, to, so much to talk about, and there's so much going on in California, it seems like, all the time, every day. The first thing I want to ask you about is about new legislation that's recently been signed into law by Governor Brown, and that's going to require a 40% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions by 2030. Can you talk about how this will impact your, your members? And then, you know, at the same time, the, the future of the state's cap-and-trade program for CO2 is still up in the air. Can you explain to the listeners what's happening with that and link that in and talk about how that could affect your members as well? First of all, too, I want to just clarify that uh, even though the first three letters of our, our name are CAL, we are uh, and we do work heavily in California and are uh, focused on keeping the state on track to meet its targets. We are a, a national organization. We have offices in Colorado and New York. So we're also working to build the, the industry outside of 
of California. But having said that, uh, your your questions are, are really good. The the new legislation that was uh, just established this year sets California on a a really clear path toward hitting a a what I think is actually a pretty tough number, which is a forty percent reduction in greenhouse gases below nineteen ninety levels by twenty thirty. So the the good news is that this is a big challenge, uh, and the way we view challenges is uh, their their opportunities, and. Um, and I think this is going to mean that the, the state is going to have to be using all of its resources, uh, both on the, the policy and regulatory front, but then also on the financial side to provide incentives and to help with the advancement of technology to move, move the industry forward. Uh, so that, you know, that's going to be the, that's the, both the big challenge and the big opportunity. Uh, and you, the second part of your question was, you know, what what does it mean for California to be moving ahead with these tough new goals while also you know facing some uncertainty around the the cap and trade program? Let me just say that you know just to clarify where things are with cap and trade right now is that the the program has been very successful so far. It has the auctions have been held, they've been orderly. There there haven't been. Uh, you know, any, any kind of uh, shenanigans uh, or manipulation of the market. So, you know, we are all, you know, crossing our fingers on that. But it's, you know, I think the program's worked very well. It has generated some, uh, you know, very significant revenues up until the last two auctions. Those those revenues from the, the initial auctions have were put to use in, in many different ways uh, to reduce greenhouse gases in the state. And I think we're, we're spurring a lot of growth. Now, right now, the the um, the program is facing a, a legal challenge in court in the courts, and the, the courts will determine whether or not uh, it will be allowed to continue. If the courts decide that that the program should not continue, or that there was a a reason why it, it shouldn't be allowed, the legislature uh, would need to there need to be a two thirds vote of the legislature to sustain the program going forward. And that would most likely require uh, bipartisan support uh, for that measure, and uh, you know that is that would be the tough thing. It, you know, could the could the uh, the legislature muster the two thirds vote to continue the program if the legal challenge was uh, was successful? So we'll have to see how that that plays out. Hopefully, the program will continue, but if not, we'll we'll have to adjust to it. So I also want to ask you about the low-carbon fuel standard. So in July, and actually this is when I first started to think, you know, I'd like to talk to John about the, about uh, for this podcast. So I saw a letter in July that CalStart and the members sent urging the legislature to keep the low-carbon fuel standard and continue supporting it. Some media outlets, as you know, at that time had reported that the oil industry was lobbying to for extending the state's climate change program in 2030 in exchange for dropping the LCFS, which we know did not happen. From your point of view, was the LCFS program ever in any real um, danger? And in terms of, you know, what's coming up in the low carbon fuel standard program, can you just talk a little bit about that from, you know, from CalStart's perspective? You know, what's interesting, what's exciting, what's, what's great for the members? Low carbon fuel standard program, you know, I, I think 
has had a, a very significant and, and beneficial uh, impact. It is, you know, I think there are, are many in, in the oil industry who feel like uh, the, the combined effect of uh, the low-carbon fuel standard plus the, the cap-and-trade program with fuels being under the cap, you know, feel like they're, uh, you know, it's, it's too much and, it, and it's cumbersome and, and financially challenging uh, for them. So there, there is no question in, you know, uh, that the oil industry was strongly working to, to try to undo the, the low-carbon fuel standard. And, and there was some, you know, a lot of, uh, they were, I think they were doing a good job of, of building some, some opposition to the policy. We, we worked with our, our members. Uh, we, had, we actually generated two letters. One was from the, the transit industry. That, that said that the, the credits that they're, they're generating from using uh, electricity or natural gas as a fuel were really helping them uh, to improve their, their business case and, uh, and to make those fuels more economical and allow them to move faster uh, into the, the, the clean fuel sector. So they helped show that, that the low-carbon fuel standard was benefiting clean transit. And then there was a second letter where we worked with industry, and, and uh, I think we had over 60 different uh, low-carbon fuel providers uh, and different associations uh, indicating that, that the policy was very beneficial and, and was helping to drive innovation and investment in, in the sector. And I think, you know, that, that just helped the legislature to, to understand that uh, there was a, a countervailing force there that uh, – the policy was really beneficial, and and you know there was at least a rumor that the, that the governor was more uh, perhaps a bit more interested in getting cap and trade uh, renewed, and might have been willing to trade off the low carbon fuel standard for that. And uh, I think you know with uh, you know the way the industry responded, there was really a message sent that uh, you know for this transformational change to occur in the state we really need both the low-carbon fuel standard and the cap-and-trade program together. Well, it is, it is interesting, you know, what you're saying, because I was looking at a, uh, some charts um, from, and I, I'm sure you're aware of, of the study. It's, it was from Lawrence Livermore uh, National Laboratory last year, and it talked about, you know, the different uh, programs and issue, you know, different things that the state will have to do to be able to meet that 40%. And, I mean, just, I mean, it is down to, I mean, it's a, you know, there was sort of, you know, here's what, what the reductions will be. And unfortunately, I can't, can't remember the figures off the top of my head, but it would be low carbon fuel standard programs, ZEV program, and, and then a bunch of an other initiatives that would, regulatory initiatives that would have to happen so that the state can meet the GHG target. So um, cap and trade, I think, was a part of that. And low carbon fuels, you know, was uh, as well, you know, sort of a, not the cornerstone, but a very important part of uh, meeting that uh, target. So there's, um, in terms of ways to, you know, pathways to meeting um, the 40%, I mean, that, that study was very clear that, you know, you'd have to have that and beyond and beyond to even have a chance of, of meeting those targets. There's no doubt that uh, this 40% target is going to require some, some major transformational changes. The good news is that there's just a, 
a lot of innovation occurring in the transportation sector. You hear it, you see it when you go to meetings with, with uh, venture capitalists in Silicon Valley, but you also hear it and you see it when you go to uh, automotive conferences uh, in Michigan. Uh, you know, I think everybody is overwhelmed or at least certainly impressed by the, the rate of, of technology innovation that's occurring in the automotive and in and, and bus and truck spaces. So the, the good news is that there is so much happening and, and things are changing and improving so quickly that, you know, I think there's a good shot, you know, we'll be able to hit that target. Now, having said that, I, my, my biggest concern is, you know, is there enough happening on the, on the liquid fuel side of the equation? The regulations uh, from the zero emission vehicle regulation to the, the federal light duty vehicle standards are really pushing a lot of innovation and investment on, on the automotive side. And the suppliers, per a, a recent survey we did, you know, are, are indicating that, that they're innovating like they've, they've never had before, and, and, and they believe these standards, you know, can be met. But, you know, are we seeing that same level of innovation and sense of urgency on the liquid fuel side? And, and that's what uh, I, I'm just not sure I'm seeing it. And, and uh, I would love to see more happening in that space. So, yeah, I mean, to, to your point, I mean, um, certainly there's, um, you know, the government, one example would be the, the Co-Optima uh, program, which is a fuel and, and vehicle uh, program. And there's certainly DOE's efforts to, um, you know, uh, foster uh, research um, for, I mean, a wide range, you know, feedstocks, production processes and technologies, you know, developing um, or funding uh, pilot plants. But the breakthroughs, especially on advanced biofuels or advanced alternative liquid fuels, since, you know, not everything's bio, I'm kind of looking for some new terminology here. We certainly aren't, aren't seeing that. We aren't seeing the as rapid a pace of development as we we are I mean we're seeing lightning speed like you're saying on the on the on the vehicle side everything from you know connectivity to batteries to fuel economy you know battery costs and things like that so what do you think is is happening there just since you brought it up and you know how can that gap be closed is this a R&D funding issue is this a regulatory certainty issue is this stakeholder will? Um, is it something else? Is it a combination of all of the above? You know, the good news is with some certainty now about the, uh, the low-carbon fuel standard program and having gotten beyond the, the initial legal challenges, you know, the oil industry uh, is starting to partner and, and, and work with startups and firms with new technologies to uh, come into compliance with, with the LCFS. So that's that's encouraging. Uh, I think that if you know four or five other key states were to to adopt similar policies, it would push the market uh, even even faster. So I think that's a you know I think that's something that that is happening now, and and more of that could could drive more innovation. I do think that uh, uh, low oil prices. Uh, while you know perhaps providing some marginal benefit for the economy at, at large is is hurting investment in this sector. I, I 
think uh, when we saw diesel and gasoline at 450 a gallon, uh, that there were a number of companies uh, preparing and ready to, to bring product to the market. But some of that technology has been put on the shelf uh, given the, the, lower, the lower oil prices. I think that's an issue. I, I would love to think that uh, in the U.S., uh, you know, we might be able to come to some sort of agreement on, a, uh, on some kind of a, a carbon tax to address the very real and, and serious threat of climate change. You know, I think a lot will depend on the election in terms of, you know, what will happen in that space. But uh, I think we, we can keep moving ahead with, with regulations uh, that we have, that they're helpful. But I, I do think that the low price of oil is, is putting a damper on, on the sector. I, I definitely agree with you. Although the thing that I do think is, is interesting, um, looking at what other countries uh, are doing, is, um, you know, in, in the past, when oil prices decreased or, or, or crashed or, or were lower, you know, certainly, you know, these kinds of initiatives go right off, you know, go right on the shelf. What I do find very interesting, not just with, you know, the low carbon fuel standard or zero emission vehicle program, not just with California specific um, programs and regulations, but if I look at what's happening in different uh, countries around and regions around the world, you know, Europe and, and parts of Asia, the two twin drivers of mitigating air pollution, which is, you know, after everything the world has done to clean up fuels and vehicles is still a huge, huge problem and, and getting worse in some parts of the world. You know, the, the Paris Agreement, the commitment to um, do something on climate change, the thing that I find that's very interesting is that despite the low oil price situation, many of these initiatives are moving forward. Um, so, for example, the European Commission has come out with a low emission mobility strategy and is looking at ways to, has already been looking at ways to foster alternative fuels and vehicles such as, you know, zero emission vehicles. And is also looking at ways to potentially phase out first generation biofuels and create more of a, more of a mandate for advanced biofuels that is based around carbon intensity, similar to what we see in the LCFS. I mean, it's, it, you know, China is looking at a zero emission vehicle program. Quebec just passed a law today, you know, on um, on a zero, you know, Im implementing its own um, zero emission vehicle program. So that's what really amazes me this time around is that that countries and, and regions are are moving forward because those twin drivers of, of air pollution and, and, and mitigating climate change are just so powerful. I, yeah, I, I think that's that's a, a really good point. And, uh, you know, I think, say, in China, because of the oppressive air quality problems that they have, uh, you know, I, I think they could possibly, you know, move toward a, a zero emission vehicle mandate of some sorts, uh, you know, somewhat similar to California. And, and uh, if they made that move, you know, that, that's going to really accelerate the growth of, of the sector. And I think 190-plus countries are getting quite serious about the, the Paris Accord and working to implement that. And I'm, I'm hopeful that on a, a national level, uh, we can see more activity here in the United States uh, on that front as well. 
So that's a good segue into um, another question that I wanted to ask you, which, which you already sort of alluded to or spoke of briefly, and that is the concept of more of a, um, you know, a, basically a national LCFS of some kind. So, you know, we know that there are a lot of issues in the federal RFS program, and it really hasn't been, at least in my view, it really hasn't jump-started you know, advanced, um, the advanced biofuels industry the way that, you know, I see to some degree happening in California. I think the, the difference is, is the, you know, it's, it's building a program that's truly based around carbon intensity. The lower carbon intensity of your fuel, the better, uh, you know, potential chance you have in the market. I've done studies on that, I've, you know, and it's, I, I, you know, our own um, study studies that I've done in the past have showed that. So do you think, and, and certainly this is dependent on who's in the White House <laughs> um, very shortly, I'm sure, but do you think there is an opportunity to, if not replace the RFS, restructure it um, so that it's more more built around carbon intensity, or it's just playing a, a national LCFS program similar to what's been done in California? I'm not quite as involved in, in uh, sort of the, the going-ons in, uh, in Washington, but, uh, you know, from talking to enough people, it, it does seem like there's a, uh, you know, a, a growing interest in not, not scrapping, but improving the renewable fuel standard at, at the federal level. You know, I think there are folks on both sides, uh, you know, that would, would really like to see uh, that policy improve. So, you know, I, I think that would be, would really be a, a great thing. I do think that in, in many ways the, the California policy uh, is, is a little more elegant, uh, perhaps. Uh, yeah, at least it, it basically it, it is less in the role of picking uh, types of fuels uh, that should be used, and and uh, uh, you know I think there's some controversy about the indirect land use side of their of the analysis that that ARB uses. You know that isn't necessarily part and parcel of you know what would have to be adopted by other states or uh, at the national level. But you know by and large it's 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 been a good policy and and provides uh, you know some clear analysis about uh, the uh, wells to wheels benefit of the various fuels, and I think CARB has done a you know a pretty good job of of implementing it. Uh, and so I you know I think what you know might help create some changes if if other states you know really started to to move ahead with a a renewable fuel their own renewable fuel standard, and, and you know might vary from from state to state. And some of them have some states have say a biodiesel or maybe an ethanol requirement but you know I think if more states started to adopt a, a comprehensive fuel program then that might you know spur some some more action at at the federal level as well uh, do you know of states that are already I mean I know at least at one time and I can't say I'm I'm, I'm not sure I'm quite up to date on this but at one time at least Washington and Oregon and and I think some of the the uh, northeast states were at least interested in looking at a potential low carbon fuels uh, standard. So do you think there's uh, a potential for those states to pick it up? Because when you say, you know, if there are states, those are the first ones that 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 come to my mind as uh, as potential uh, picking up the mantle on this issue. 
Well, Oregon does have a, a low-carbon fuel standard now, and, and it's a bit different than the California one, but it is moving in the right direction. And, uh, you know, I uh, you know I could see the, the states you were mentioned there as possibilities. Uh, you know, I could see some other states uh, that are generating some of the feedstocks and agricultural products, uh, you know, also being interested. You know, sometimes uh, national change occurs uh, from, from the states up and, from uh, changes occurring at the state level, and you know that may just be you know what's needed uh, on on the fuel side of the equation here. So I want to ask you about a survey that uh, the CalStart recently commissioned from Ricardo Energy and Environment, and you you just referenced it a little bit earlier, but I'd like to talk a little bit more about it now. So the survey was about how automotive suppliers perceive the federal fuel economy standards. For those listeners who may not be aware or up to date, can you just summarize the major findings? And then the questions that I wanted to ask you is, did anything in the survey stand out or surprise you, and I also would like to know uh, what the auto industry's response has been, if any. The, the federal uh, government, uh, uh, the EPA and, and National Highway Traffic Safety Administration have established a 2025 uh, standard for both greenhouse gases and, and fuel economy, um, and uh, the EPA has kicked off a what's called a midterm evaluation process that. Uh, Right now, they're, they've done their technology assessment report. Uh, they're getting uh, reviewing now the, the feedback on that. And at some point in 2017, they'll, they'll make the recommendation as to whether or not in the out years 2022 to 2025, the standard should uh, remain as it is or if it should be weakened or strengthened. What we did was uh, we... Uh, had Ricardo interview on a on a confidential basis about 23 automotive suppliers, and about 90 more than 90 percent of them were tier one, so they were the the big suppliers that uh, sell directly to the auto companies, and uh, and we asked them uh, about the the uh, the standards, and and they they you know by two thirds or more in regards to all the questions. Were, were very supportive of, of the standards. They felt like uh, they were developing the technology, they, they were innovating, and that the standards uh, certainly could be met. And they also felt like they were investing in, in the standards being maintained and that uh, at least some of them felt like if there was a weakening, it, it would harm those investments. That was, uh, you know, that was the response we got. We weren't weren't quite sure, you know, how they would would respond. And uh, and then just to your your question about, you know, what uh, what if anything surprised us? And I think the one of the surprises was that suppliers are really working to be, uh, and most of them are already, you know, global players, and they are really developing this technology now, high efficiency, advanced technologies not just to meet the U.S. standard, but to also meet the standards in, in Europe, Japan, and China. And, and while those standards vary a little bit, they're, they're largely coalescing around the, the same kind of numbers and, and are requiring the same major, you know, technologies, advancement in technology. So in some ways, you know, the, the U.S. Could, could back down, but, you know, these suppliers uh, – you know, 
are innovating anyway. And, you know, it, one argument could be made that, you know, the U.S. would be, uh, you know, to, to back down now, you know, they would be foregoing the benefiting from a lot of the investment and innovations that are being made, uh, you know, by the suppliers to, to meet the demands of those other markets. I want to get your reaction to a recent study that comes from the NRDC and Shulock Consulting from July of this year. So the study suggests, as you probably know, that Tesla alone could satisfy the entire auto industry's ZEV obligations in the state of California. And the state has just published its ZEV action plan with the goal of putting 1.5 million ZEVs on the road by 2025. How do you think CARB will ultimately address the deficiencies raised by the NRDC and Shulock. And do you think the state's goal of putting 1.5 million ZEVs on the road by 2025 is realistic? Um, and, um, you know, for your members, what role will they play in, in making this happen? Okay. Uh, Tammy, I, I want to congratulate you again on asking another great cluster of questions there. Uh, I think there is a growing realization that the uh, the current program, uh, as structured, does provide a significant amount of credits for uh, for various types of, of electric uh, vehicles, and that uh, because there are so many credits in the system, the value of those credits is starting to decline fairly significantly. There are there are a number of, of OEMs that uh, you know have had to enter the, the credit market uh, to to meet their requirements. You know, so that's that has been interesting, and, and of course they don't like having to buy credits from from other car manufacturers, and and that's you know that's that's understandable. I think there's a real possibility that, and based on the analysis I've seen, that it is possible that. The, the current policy could be met, and it, it could end up coming up short of its original stated goal, which was uh, 15% of, of new car sales being either battery electric, fuel cell, or plug-in hybrid. And it, and it, is, it, it is possible that, that we could have, uh, because there are so many credits in the system, that we may not get that many vehicles being sold in, in 2025. Now, I, I don't know what the Air Board will do at its uh, at the uh, the meetings later here in, in December and then uh, next year on this on this policy. I, I will say that you know one thing to keep in mind is that there are nine other states that have opted to not pursue the federal standard but to follow the California standard relative to to this this area and they have zero emission vehicle rules too so i think california is making a concerted effort to provide assistance to the car companies in terms of uh providing financial incentives uh access to the the diamond or hov lanes and in other types of incentives and now there's still a lot more to be done in california in terms of preparing the market but it's it's moving ahead quickly, and I think that uh, you know we're not seeing quite as much activity in in the Northeast uh, by all those states. I think that will start to change, and I think we'll see more activity on their part. 
I think what's what's also going to be important for those other states in the Northeast is that uh, vehicles that are electric vehicles will also need to be offered that have all-wheel drive capability because a much higher percentage of the vehicles sold in, in the Northeast do have all-wheel drive capability. You know, and I want to, you know, commend Tesla for, for offering two products that, that do have all-wheel drive. Volvo has a plug-in hybrid with all-wheel, all-wheel drive, as does uh, BMW. Uh, so they're, they're to be commended for that and, and to be, uh, uh, you know, to be providing a, an electric vehicle that, you know, would meet more of the needs of people who live uh, in, in the Northeast. So, you know, I am hopeful that we'll see more offerings, uh, you know, that are both electric and have all-wheel drive in the future. So we'll end it there. Uh, that's the show. Thanks for listening. I want to thank John Basel so much for being on the show today and entertaining my endless cluster of questions. <laughs> <laughs> You are a good sport. Uh, Please do us a favor before you go today, will you? Head over to iTunes and rate this podcast. This is huge for us in terms of improving our ranking and keeping the show visible so that other people can discover it and hopefully benefit from it. Thanks ahead of time for helping out. If you're looking for more insight and analysis on low-carbon fuels and vehicles issues, sign up for my free weekly newsletter at futurefuelstrategies.com. Thanks so much for listening. See you next time.